0: Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your destination for incredible people, places, things, and ideas, a nexus point for the intriguing, interesting, invigorating, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Tonight we're going to talk about Alcatraz. History has proven it impenetrable and inescapable. The terrain is hostile, the inhabitants criminal. This is where our next guest was brought as an infant and raised to adolescence. Chuck Stucker has turned that unique childhood into a lifelong passion, documenting the island of Alcatraz throughout its history as a part of the Americas. Chuck, thank you for being here. Now, what years were you on the island exactly?
1: Well, I I came there with my family uh, in 1940. My father had been transferred to Alcatraz in 1939 from Leavenworth Penitentiary, but I was not born until May of 1940. Uh, we were unable to get accommodations on the island until October of 1940, and that's when I arrived on the island <laughs> with my family. Uh, I was about four months old. And, and uh, you
0: didn't come in shackles. You had the unique distinction I'd, of not coming. No
1: shackles. I came as a bundle.
0: Okay. <laughs> that's adorable. So, was your father a career correctional officer or whatever they call yes,
1: him? Yes. He had. Uh, He had found his way to be a correctional officer in 1928 when he started at uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary. And uh, that was after kicking around the country and trying to find his way. He was born and raised in Leavenworth, but he ran away from home at 16, uh, rode the rails out to uh, California, joined the Marines. And by the time he got back from China, he was about 19 years of age and uh, he was set to create a family. Uh, he went to work in some lead mines, which, uh, which wow. had collapses, and he decided that was not for him. And luckily for him, he became a correctional officer, which, which many people did during the Depression years
0: so he really wanted to work in a dangerous uh, career <laughs> oddly <laughs> of... enough
1: it was never considered dangerous by him my father was no one tough fellow uh, i could never match his standard for what he did uh, i learned early on not to become a correctional officer that was a tough job and you need to be a tough person
0: yeah so when you were on the island did you actually were you in the prison when people were in there like when the Inmates were in there, or were, was it? Was well,
1: now we have to go. You know, as a baby, I can't tell you much about uh, what it was like when I was a baby. My sister, who was thirteen years older, she was thirteen at the time we moved to the island, and so she has better memories of that time. Uh, to get you up to my memories, though, we have to we have to cover a few bases. Uh, World War Two came along, mm-hmm. nineteen forty-one. The end of nineteen forty-one. And it was uh, patriotism to the max. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about patriotism for 9-11, well, it was even more so when World War II came along. My father, who had a family, uh, two children, was a correctional officer, which was a position that uh, kept you out of the draft. Uh, I didn't know
0: that, oh, that's You, you
1: were draft-exempt, uh, he re-enlisted. Uh, he re-enlisted at uh, 40 years of age, and they took him. And uh, we had to leave the island because he went back into the Navy. Originally he was in the Marines, they took him back into the Navy. He was not unique. There was a great drain of officers during World War II to where they put a stop to it. Uh, They actually stopped you. They reduced the age requirement to be a correctional officer from 27 to 21, and they started advertising in the newspapers to backfill these positions, which created uh, some interesting stories on Alcatraz. When the war ended in 1945, my father got his job back right away, but it took three years before we could get some open accommodations back on Alcatraz, Mm -hmm. at which time I was eight, and we moved back to the island into the bachelor officer's quarters. (laughs) Kind of interesting because we were a family, but I moved into the bachelor officer's quarters (laughs) at eight. And uh, ultimately moved into other dwellings throughout the island until I left at age 13. So, in terms of your question about inmates, uh, I, I tell people time and again, inmates didn't mean anything to you unless they were pointed out as being something special. They were adults in gray uniforms. And uh, you didn't have much to do with adults when uh, you were that age. I did help them collect our garbage and help them collect our laundry. They did all the laundry. You'd wrap it up in a big sheet with your name on it of course. All your clothing was named because it went to the prison laundry. And I would help them do that just for fun.
0: That must have been really difficult to keep everyone's underwear in order. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it was like being in the military, where you have all of your garments named, and uh, so it came back to you if it had your name on it. Some uh, some uh, officers, though, if they were not liked by certain inmates, uh, it may come back in damaged condition or overly starched. This, this happened. And women, of course, didn't send their uh, female garments because it would never come back. Right. That that makes sense. This is a given. But in terms of knowing the inmates, actually knowing and having anything to do with the inmates, I didn't. I didn't want to, and I had no need. Only if one was pointed out, uh, there was a fellow by the name of Cook, as I remember, that was brought to Alcatraz. He was a serial killer. He was not a federal uh, penitentiary person as I remember, but they sent him to Alcatraz on his way to San Quentin where he was executed. And I did see him come onto the dock because it was a special event kind of thing. Right. But, but for those first inmates, the first, uh, the first 32 inmates were military holdovers. So they stayed because the military left them they become, hmm. became number one to number 32. Then there was an inmate or two brought in by the federal government, and then a whole bunch of inmates came at one time. Um, I was gonna say maybe 80. The number could be off, but it was three rail cars. Wow. And they were put in these rail cars in Atlanta, in Leavenworth, and who knows where, and they were transported out to a Tiburon, as I recall, and at Tiburon, they didn't take the inmates out of the rail cars, they loaded them onto barges in the rail cars, and they brought the barge over to Alcatraz and unloaded them on Alcatraz. Wow. And there was a whole lot of inmates. Uh, I have some photos showing the inmates on the dock. But at that time, the kids that were lucky enough to be there knew they were coming, and they saw them come off the rail cars and saw them get marched up the uh, switchbacks to the back of the prison into the recreation yard. And that to me was one fascinating time. Al Capone was part of that group and uh, And you were there, you saw so you saw My me. the kids were there that were I was not born yet. That right. was in like 1934. 30. I was going to say that seemed that was early. But the kids that were there tell some great stories and I had to have the photos. But no, I missed that by about uh, 6 years <laughs> and I was too young to care. But your question was back to the inmates and children. They didn't want you to have contact with them, but a few kids did have contact depending upon the situation. The inmates would come if they had special talents like being an electrician, like being a plumber. They would use uh, these talents to help fix a problem in your dwelling, for example. And my sister recalled being frightened when one came into the house where we were living to fix a problem and that inmate said, are you the Stuckers from Leavenworth? <laughs> he, he knew my father uh, from Leavenworth, and it frightened my mother. And her but Of course, he was not alone. He was with a, a correctional officer. They, they would never be alone.
0: Right.
1: So there were contacts, but it was few and far between. And uh, depending upon who you talked to, they might have received a, a baseball from an inmate. The guard may let him do that, or some kind.
0: Well, let's go on, because I, I found this kind of fascinating with the inmates in general. I think the, um, what's the quote I have? That, that, that the inmates were only guaranteed food, shelter, um, medical care, and clothing, I think. And That's that was, right. And that was all they were guaranteed. That's right. And literally everything else that they did was a privilege that they had to earn. So even doing laundry was a privilege, because then they could, you know... So I mean, how did uh, what other things were they able to do? I mean, what were some of the high, you know, the highly desired jobs people wanted?
1: Well, as as I know it from from other people, of course, I was too young at that particular time. And as I grew up, the the most privileged job on Alcatraz was to be a pass man. And a past man is equivalent to a trustee in any other prison, but the term past man was carried over from the military times. In military documentation, they called them past men. Now, there were only two past men to my knowledge, but there could have been more. And they they provided a service to the warden. Warden Johnson, for example, had two pass men, and I believe that probably carried through to the other wardens as well, but for him he had two passmen. men. Warden Swope had pass men. He was the next warden. The pass men would be able to come in and out of the prison through the main entrance by pass, and they would be recognized, and they would not have a correctional officer with them, and they would, they would do services for the warden. One would cook, and one would house clean.
0: So they were like butlers.
1: They were like butlers, but they were called passmen. Of course, this is a unique job because you were not supervised. You could come in and out of the prison to the, to the warden's house. And so they were really, had the most freedom of anybody on the island. I know they were passmen, for example, because I used to go fishing in later years with Warden Swope's wife. And when I'd knock on the door, the passmen would answer. His name was Montgomery, and of course, (laughs) I didn't pay any attention to him as a person because he just opened the door. But many years later when I was on Alcatraz, I ran across him again and we had a nice conversation. (laughs) But from that, the other jobs that would be desirable would be possibly kitchen service, work in the kitchen, you have access to food. Uh, The dock duty was great duty. You would uh, go to the dock and do various things on the dock. There would be 10 or 12 or more of the uh, uh, inmates on the dock, doing dock service, unloading barges, loading, and so forth. The the model shop where they made furniture, they repaired furniture. They had a, a huge laundry where they did all the laundry for everybody, including the Army and the Navy. During the war, they made submarine nets, they, made, they repaired boys, uh, and I don't know what other activities they did, but these were the, the activities that would get you out of the prison into these various entities to where you do the job. And they were, they were paid, I believe, a nominal sum, but what they acquired that was more important was good time. You could acquire good time. Uh, I have a ratio somewhere. So many hours would result in so much good time, which would be taken off of your sentence, your total sentence, because you didn't know how long you would be in Alcatraz, but your total sentence would be whatever you were tried for it could be reduced.
0: So you could, <clears throat> so you could, um, you could work hard, and they would use that time yes. against your time in prison.
1: Yes. Wow. That was good time, and. There, there's a great story about an inmate that escaped, partially escaped in 1949. 45, his name was Giles. He lost 10 years of good time oh. by that escape. But that's a story that's another story off track from where we're going right here. No,
0: that's I want to get to these. I mean, cuz you you've kind of established yourself as someone who knows the history of Alcatraz. So actually before we get too far ahead, let me can we talk about a little bit of the history, the unknown history, you know, going back right, right. to the island. Let's start there because I do want to get your take on the escapes cuz it's, you know, it, it, this is all it all kind of works its way back. So the from what I was reading, the indigenous peoples were actually had were fearful of the island before anyone came you know to the island itself
1: it's very difficult to know about what the native people in the area thought about Alcatraz there's a lot of a number of stories written about that but to my best knowledge they didn't use it for anything other than possibly gathering some bird eggs or some eggs or they didn't use it for anything it had birds on it it was like a big round dome of an egg. And there's, there's stories, there's some legends written about it, but I, I can't quote them. I have a book that refers to some of those. But as far as I know, they didn't use it for anything. But when the, when the first facility was installed on the island in 1854, it was a lighthouse. Hmm and you can, you can understand the need for a lighthouse because the reason San Francisco Bay wasn't discovered for many, many years after the Spaniards and the uh, Russians and the English went up and down the coast was that the Golden Gate is really narrow. It, looking at it from the water outside the gate, you'd never suspect anything was there and it was really kind of dumb luck that a Spaniard fell into the bay and once it was discovered, it says, my, this is something, because it is a special bay. So when the United States at the time uh, came into California and established their presence, they, they needed something that would provide uh, safety for mariners. So a lighthouse was established there first and that's when the first families came to Alcatraz, families meaning men, women and children. Shortly thereafter uh, wasn't many it wasn't long after that few years they established a fort there, Fort Alcatraz the mm-hmm. military did. And there was great fear about uh, foreign powers taking California. But what's that, what that when is this? in, in 1854 to 1859 during that period they established a fort. And the fear was not only foreign powers; it was a fear of the southern sympathizers.
0: So we're moving into the Civil War, right around.
1: Well, year. you're talking 1859 to 1860, so you're getting close to. So the politics of the time were were really uh, unsettled, and and so they established the fort. And what I found through my studies fascinated me. I thought. Uh, that no one would really be interested in coming out to man a fort. We were in the wilderness at that time, but it turns out that it was a coveted position from West Point. And if if you look in some of the early documentation that I found, and I know there's more, and there's probably people who can talk to this more, a number of those uh, high-ranking graduates from West Point were sent out to Alcatraz to help build and man the facility and historically many of them went into the civil war and many of them became generals in later life and uh, and politicians in later life <laughs> and their kickoff was the coveted assignment of alcatraz so.
0: it's it's funny because when you think of the civil war it's always north versus south and you never think of well you know because we were settling the west you know that was very early stages but you never think of their involvement and in how they were influential or what they did I mean, you never really hear about the Californians in the Civil War, you know.
1: No, but uh, they they were definitely involved, those that came through the military, and the very first prison on Alcatraz, Prison 1, which was down near the dock, it's been documented that some of the very first prisoners there were southern sympathizers that were arrested in San Francisco. So I'm not real versed at this, but there are historians that have documented the names and the people that were there. And so that always fascinated me. Hey, this is the first prison and Southern sympathizers are here. <laughs> uh, it's not like the federal years that came later, it was different. And sh- of course-
0: They shipped them all the way out to Alcatraz from yes. wherever they-
1: Yes. Wow. And, and of course it, it followed, you can understand this, that in, in 1906 when the earthquake came about, hmm and San Francisco was utterly destroyed, including the prisons. Uh, Alcatraz fared really well, uh, Mm -hmm. very little damage. Uh, They shipped the prisoners out to Alcatraz, however many they could hold, to hold them while they reestablished facilities in San Francisco.
0: Well, it's not a big prison. Alcatraz isn't—I mean, it's not—physically, the island is large and they used a lot of it, but there, i mean, what does it hold, 300 and— Well, you have to go
1: back in time. I don't know the actual figures for the first prison, and my studies have indicated there have been three prisons there. There were the first prison down near the dock, and I think it had very limited capacity. I don't even want to throw a number out to you, but very limited. The second prison, which was built up on what became the parade ground, established by the military, they actually terraformed the island to uh, create that parade ground. They established what I call prison number two. It had a capacity of 600 and it was, wow. it was, it was quite large in its capacity as I read. The third prison— Well, let me stop you there. What was that prison built
0: for, the second prison?
1: It was built for the military use, of course. It was all military up until 1933. Things were happening worldwide, the Spanish-American War. There were things happening throughout the world in 1890s and in 1900s and in 1870s. We were getting more involved in the world. And of course our troops were, the army was expanding and the need for a facility for military discipline they expanded. So it was all military driven at the time, politics in the world at the time. Okay. By the time they built the third prison, which was also built for the military and it's the current prison that you see now. It was started around 1910 and completed by 1913 it only had a capacity maybe its maximum capacity was 400 there's people that can tell you exact but the federal years they never had more than about 305 people in there so it was much more limited so i sure would like to know more about these years i'm telling you about what i have learned sure yeah there is nobody alive that lived there during that time but i do have uh, a part of a diary that was written in the 1860s. And it was a it was a woman, a, a lieutenant's wife, that lived in the uh, accommodations that they had at the time. It was called a Citadel. Citadel. It was a rather large building where their personnel lived in, accommodations. It was where the current prison currently stands. Uh, I have a a diary entry from her from the 1860s and it's really interesting reading as to how it was to live in the Citadel in the 1860s. I have a letter on hand from the 1870s from a doctor that lived on Alcatraz writing back to his parents. There are very few documents to indicate what it was like to live there during that time. But from my standpoint, I'd like to know more because I think about it. I know when I lived there, we had motors on our, on our craft. They didn't have motors on their craft in the 1860s. It was difficult with the tidal action to get back and forth from San Francisco. I found it fascinating uh, in reading that the last uh, documented birth on Alcatraz, authenticated birth, was in 1906. So prior to that time, uh, families were living differently than when I lived there.
0: Wow, that's, I mean, because one of the things that, you know, really struck me is, Everyone knows about the inmates. Everyone, you know, prison life is strangely iconic and people look into it, you know, modern prison life, old prison life. Like, how did inmates communicate and how it's so different from the other world? But you have real people who are not inmates living on an island that have to occupy themselves, you know, that have to eat, sleep, you know, live. There's doctors, kids, moms, wives. Right? How did they live, you know? I mean, were there activities? What did the kids do for fun, you know? I mean, these are the types of things that kind of blow my mind you know this is the stuff that isn't documented i mean like what did
1: you guys do for activities what were well uh, you know i wish i could tell you more about the federal years i'll tell you about mine but but i'm interested in these years because there is no documentation that has appeared there may be diaries somewhere there may be documentation somewhere i've indicated i have a few but to me the sad thing is that there's no documentation that I've been able to find to talk about the family life or the life during that time. There is absolutely nothing been written to date that I'm aware of that shows a spouse's life on Alcatraz. Through the military years, the federal years, there is no woman that I know of that has ever written about this. There are some manuscripts, but they haven't been published yet, and they were during the federal years, but nothing from the military years, nothing about what life was like. And it was so different from when I was there that it's just fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, what did people, you know, was like pioneer life but without even the you know, modicum of civilization that people had in the West, I mean, you did nothing. You run an island.
1: I, I know that the women had a great influence about terraforming the island. The women working with San Francisco had soil brought in, the army had soil brought in, they put plants, they established the growth that you see out there now. I know that that has continued from the time women started to be on the island because the officers and military didn't seem to have much interest. So, all of that is unknown to date and I wish some diaries would appear, I wish some documentation would appear. When you get to the federal years, you start having more information available, photography was better, you can piece that together better with the exception that no woman that lived there ever left any diary or written documentation because I'd like to know how they handled it. I, I can tell you pretty much how the officers handled it, but not from the family side.
0: Yeah, I imagine what cabin fever did. I mean, did that settle in? I mean, did people go nuts? I mean, did, were there any, you know, were there any strange occurrences that you know that in all of the history you've kind of looked at? you know, strange occurrences like that where someone who wasn't an inmate kind of
1: lost it or... Um, that had to have happened. It, yeah. it had to have happened. We, I have no knowledge about anybody during my time frame, during, during the federal years, uh, going stir-crazy, the, the, the family members. There's only been documented during the federal years, 29 years, as I recall the figures, there were 10 natural deaths, uh, there were five suicides and eight murders. Well, that's in 29 years, and that's really a small amount. Uh, for the family members, I'm not aware of any other than some, some, uh, some correctional officers died on the island because of uh, heart conditions, because of uh, health concerns. There were times when we were quarantined if somebody got uh, that kind of ailment, you were quarantined to your, to your living establishment. That happened. And I'm sure during the military years, it happened as well, but there's no documentation.
0: When you say quarantine, you mean diseases. Yes, yeah,
1: so if you got, you got some kind of communicable disease that of the time maybe just name scarlet fever or something mm-hmm. at the time, they would quarantine for me because it was highly communicatable. And mm-hmm. so they'd quarantine. I never got quarantined. The worst thing that happened to me was the mumps. <laughs> and, and, and actually, that's a story to itself because they had a bit of special boat to run me to San Francisco because I was dying. But that, Was that really, was that happen? Well, well tell, what, that's... Uh, that that happened when I was ten years old. Uh, they decided that my uh, mom had become inflamed took me to San Francisco, and they were removed. Uh, my my you know my uh, glands
0: were removed. Because they have medical facilities on the island, but that wasn't they weren't.
1: No, the medical facilities on the island were just for real emergencies and for. Uh, for inmate emergencies, and I can tell you a couple of stories there. But in my particular case, uh, the mumps, the, the glands got inflamed, and they removed them in St. Francis Hospital in San Francisco. And uh, after spending the week you're supposed to spend, or so, they sent me back to the island. Well. It didn't take, the stitches or whatever they used broke and I was bleeding and I was uh, choking on my own, uh, uh, you know, whatever happens. But fortunately there was a medical doctor on the island at the time, Uh, he was a naval doctor. And uh, they called him in right away because I could still remember seeing him. He he got these forceps and he came down and he pulled his big clotted blood out of my throat. (sighs) And I was able to breathe again. And because it was such an emergency, they they called the special boat, to Warden Johnson. And they took me back to San Francisco and I recovered but <laughs> oh, wow, I was that was a unique experience that they had to get a special boat for me. But I wasn't the only person that ran into that. There were broken arms and there were limbs and there were other things that happened on occasion. That's just my occasion.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's. I mean, it is a prison. I'm sure there were riots and people, you know, I assume there would be need for medical facilities. So there was only one doctor or there was a staff? As, there
1: was a staff. They had MTAs that uh, had people worked with them. Uh, that changed over the years, too, and I can't tell you just all the, the parameters. But what I'm most familiar with is, uh, is from the daughter of the first uh, doctor. He was Dr. Hess that came there during the, during the federal years. And the reason uh, I'm familiar with him is uh, his daughter's still alive, and I can talk to her. But he, his, he came with Al Capone. Uh, he, uh, how that happened, I don't know, but uh, when Al Capone was transferred from Atlanta to uh, Alcatraz, Dr. Hess was also transferred to Alcatraz. So he became, he became by, by chance, the guy that took care of Al Capone the entire time he was on Alcatraz and and actually was involved in the transfer of him out of Alcatraz when he completed his sentence back to Atlanta where he was released. That's a whole story to itself. But Dr. Hess was the full-time doctor on Alcatraz and he had a staff and they called MTAs, uh, staff of nurses, I guess you'd call them nurses, they were all males. And that would make up the core of what took care of the prisoners and any outstanding issue that would happen among the staff that was living out there. He, when he left, he was replaced by another full time doctor and they rotated in some fashion. I bring that, I mention that because I had an unusual circumstance that happened to me later in life. Uh, I had my. uh, personal things, I had my gallbladder removed because of problems. And the surgeon that removed my gallbladder turned out to have been a doctor on Alcatraz.
0: Yeah, get out of here. No,
1: he was a doctor in 1960. I had left long years before. I was quite a bit older. but That's he, incredible. <laughs> he, he, uh, what happened when he was a doctor was that at that time in 1960, in the years that took place before it closed, they were contracting doctors for a year at a time. And so, through whatever happened between the original doctors in the 30s and the 50s, this changed. But they would contract uh, medical doctors to be there for at least a year. He was there for a year. He would provide the services on Alcatraz. But he removed my gallbladder in later years, and I thought that was kind of an interesting coincidence. That's
0: unbelievable. <laughs> um, well, let's get, to get back to Dr. Hess. So, yes. is there any chance that he was uh, Al Capone's? you know, guy? Was he like his personal doctor?
1: Well, Because
0: he, he, Al, Al Capone came in with syphilis, right? He had it before he before he, he came into the he did.
1: prison. He did.
0: So, I mean, I don't know if there's any connection that he, you know... He
1: knew about it. They were well aware of it. And he had, uh, as at least my information says, that Al didn't refuse treatment, that he had the treatments of the time, but they didn't take. It didn't provide the long-lasting relief he needed. So Al, uh, based upon Dr. Hess's accounts, through his daughter, uh, he, he had problems problem the whole time he was on Alcatraz. He had problems where he'd end up in the hospital, he was out of his mind, he was delirious, things like this. He was not in good health when he was out there. And Dr. Hess would have been the guy to speak to that, but uh, only through his daughter do I know that. And in essence, he became his personal physician while he was out there, but he was providing service for everybody else as well.
0: Right. Um... Well, let so, me let
1: me throw one other little story in because it. we'll we'll leave uh, Al Capone to later. I have a friend by the name of Roy Chandler, who was on the island at the time. He was uh, he was one of the first families, and they left there about nineteen thirty eight or so. But uh, when Al, when uh, Roy who was ten years old, he had an attack of emphysema, and uh, the. Emphysema, the treatment at the time, there was uh, an adrenaline shot, and uh, I, I don't know medically, but that's what he had to get, and so his father, because the attack was bad, took him up to the hospital in uh, the current prison building, and uh, you can, you don't have to go through the main cell block to get there. Those of you that have been there is... Uh, to go around the island, know that you can come through the basement up through a back way into the hospital. And that's the way uh, Roy was taken by his father. And uh, when they got up there to the uh, hospital, there was an inmate mopping the floor. Well, he was introduced to Roy by his father as Al Capone. This was Al Capone mopping the floor in the hospital, which is where he spent a lot of his time. And he was introduced to, to Roy, and he shook his hand. And uh, we have this, of course, I have this conversation on video, which is online at, at our website. But uh, I, I bring this up because this is the impression you can have as a young kid. Roy was 10, and as he's telling this story to us, and we're video to him many, many years later, he's 80 plus years old. He's saying, I can still remember the warmth of that man's hand when I shook his hand. (laughs) So I thought, wow, that's special. He shook Al Capone's hand and he still can remember the warmth of his hand. But he had an opportunity then to meet Al because he was introduced by his father, which is the way that would have to take place.
0: That's unbelievable. Um, I I don't want to focus on inmates, but I did hear one since we're on Al Capone, one thing that I saw on your website um, was a pamphlet there were a lot of activities that the inmates were allowed to do yeah and Al Capone not you know you'll you can speak to this a little bit yeah. greater but he was part of a band they had a band called the um, the rock Island the oh you're you're, sh- you're showing me a pamphlet now for those listening at home yeah um, this is a scanned copy this isn't an original thank God but uh, so he was he, he was in the band yes they, so yes. tell me a little bit about this band
1: well uh, Evidently, I don't know just how it started, but very early on, since Al was number 85, he was only the 85th prisoner to arrive to Alcatraz, very early on and a band was established. And uh, they called themselves the Rock Islanders, and Al played the, I think it's the tenor, ban- uh, banjo, whatever it lists there, you're looking at the playbill there. And I copied that playbill because to me, I say, you could reproduce the music that's listened on that playbill now if you wanted to. <laughs> right. And I've listed the inmates that were part of the band. The, the, the group actually continued till the island was closed. I, I have uh, photographs of uh, the inmate band. Uh, rotating members? Rotating members, uh, because this was 20 this was some years later, it's still going on. There are some photographs showing him playing in the dining hall, Uh, so it continued through the whole time. I have never talked to an inmate that was part of the band to ask him questions, but uh, it did exist and it was there and he was a prominent member.
0: It's. Uh, I mean, just even the fact that he played an instrument yes. and played it to performance level, yes. and that that instrument was the banjo. I mean, <laughs> if I didn't see that with my own eyes, I wouldn't, wouldn't believe it. it. I wouldn't believe it. Well, um, I have
1: a, a the another little facet that I've never been able to confirm about Al. My uncle, hmm. by the way, was also an officer on Alcatraz. I forgot to
0: ask you that. Yeah, both your uncle.
1: My and my uncle and my cousin were officers on Alcatraz as well, and that's part of my family stories I tell, but my uncle uh, helped open Alcatraz up in 1934. He came out and lived there for six months or a little longer. My cousin, his daughter, uh, was was, was a very young child when she was there, but in an interview with my uncle that happened many, many years later that I have a copy of, he mentioned something I wished I could have talked to him about. He mentioned the fact that uh, if Al Capone was in another room, his voice was very high and you could have mistaken it for a woman.
0: <laughs> his normal speaking voice?
1: So, <laughs> in inquiries about this later, because nowhere in the literature or nowhere any other interview I've ever seen has mentioned it, I did find out from, uh, from a custodian of uh, Al Capone's uh, uh, background, that there is no existing recording of Al Capone speaking. There is no audio recording available. So other than my uncle's comment that his voice was very high, it could have been mistaken for a woman, I immediately flashed back to Rod Steiger playing him in the movies. Uh, wouldn't fit with a high voice. My, my mind went to Mike Tyson. <laughs> the, my, there
0: you yeah. go. Wow, that's incredible. So
1: what, what my uncle stated on film, that it was high. He had no reason to state that other than he was asked his impressions, and I'm wondering if in fact what Al's voice was like. That's one of those things we may never know since there's no existing audio recording. Yeah. And he
0: wasn't a singer, so... No. You know, he wasn't. Um, well, let's talk, this, let's get into some fun stuff about the island. This is, you know, some of the stuff, the, um, this is, so the island itself, this is what's kind of amazing to me. It is perfectly built as a prison. It's inescapable, people have said. Um, so there were, do you know a little bit about how it was inescapable? You know, the waters are cold, the tides, you know, the rocky shoreline. I mean, can, can you go over that a little bit?
1: Well, I, I can tell you, tell you about the, the tides the tides are very rapid in and out of the Bay. And if anybody that's been to San Francisco, they have to understand that all of the water from the South Bay all the way down to San Jose and all the water from the North Bay, including the rivers that feed out of Sacramento, they all exit out that little opening that's called the Golden Gate. And they go in and out a couple of times a day. Well, that's a whole lot of water. I'm sure there's statistics that show you how many gallons per second uh, that is going in and out. But I can testify that uh, that it's rapid. Uh, And one of my favorite pastimes on Alcatraz was the fish, and I used to fish off the island, the San Francisco side, and I could watch the tide go in and out, and those currents were rapid. Believe it or not, I saw items as as big as a telephone pole disappear and then pop back up 100 yards later. Uh, I I don't know how you would deal with that as a swimmer. Swimmers, by the way, do. Can I pause you for a second? What was a
0: telephone pole doing out in the San Francisco Bay. Well, I'm
1: saying it was like a telephone pole <laughs> oh. because during, during the, the winter months when you got to run off through the rivers, I mean the Sacramento River and in the North Bay, you have all kinds of things that could float down. You know, in 1955 there was major flooding in the Yuba City area. And you, got, you got huge amount of debris that can mm-hmm. come down those rivers, especially in the early years. They, they may have that control now, but I'm not certain but there are times when large objects end up in the bay.
0: Wow, okay, so and, okay. anyway, I didn't me to pause you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. So.
1: So, so I do know that people who swim from Alcatraz and I do have some notes on a young girl that swam from Alcatraz, and I'm gonna say it was the late 30s. Uh, she was a teenager living on Alcatraz. It was, no, it was probably in your early 30s because she was a military officer's uh, daughter. You can read the, the newspaper clipping but, but she was only about 16 at the time and she took it in her head to swim and she did. She had a crew and I mean it wasn't like she just jumped off and did it <laughs> right. but, but she had enough sense to do it when the tides were slack mm. and every swimmer to date does it when the tides are slack and, uh, and she to my knowledge was the first person ever to do it without a wetsuit. She swam it to San Francisco and the media got involved and she got in the newspaper. Today, most people swim it with a wetsuit because of the, the, the temperature. Uh, the temperatures can vary from you know, sometime in the high 40s to maybe it gets 59 or something. I know there's people that know the exact, but they swim it with a wetsuit because hypothermia can enter into it if you're in the water too long. Uh, if you leave Alcatraz during slack tide and shoot for uh, a Muni Pier, which is directly across, it's where our, one of our boat docks was. You will end up further west from that by the time you, you get to shore, so you actually shoot toward the ferry building or the Bay Bridge if you're a fast enough swimmer to end up where you want. If you're in the water more than 45 minutes or so and don't have a wetsuit, you're going to be in trouble from a temperature standpoint. So while it's done, and it's done yearly, Uh, They have a swim and a run. It's done yearly. Uh, It it seems virtually impossible for anybody else to do it at any time. Uh, There's not a swimmer in the world that could swim it during the tides. It's never been done. It's been tried, but it hasn't been done. Wow. But there was one inmate, of course, and I, you might remember you telling me the very last escape. He actually made it to San Francisco. That's a whole nother story. John
0: Paul Scott was yes. one of them. Yeah, he was the last. So he actually escaped. Yes. And actually, I, on some of the interviews I saw that you do, he's the only person who was actually convicted of escaping.
1: He got. He got to San Francisco.
0: So how did, did you know a little bit about that story? Uh, I know
1: it. Happen? I know exact. I have all the documentation here. I went and I. I have all of his statements and the Bureau of Prisons documentation regarding that. Makes a much better story when you're with me out in the island, so I can walk you through <laughs> it. But but it, it is a fascinating story.
0: Well, yeah. let's hear it. what 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 happens. Well, because because the other thing is you have to get out of the prison. I mean, you know, you're talking about these are just the environmental factor, environmental factors of getting off the island and onto the shore and escaping from there. But you know, the prisons. A prison. <laughs> it's just, you know it's designed to keep you in.
1: Well, you know, of course, I'm I'm going from documentation, sure. and uh, I'm going from people that were around at the time.
0: If you embellish and make up a completely different story, no one listening will even
1: know. No, but but I try not to do that because the real story is just as fascinating as anything you I could. I'd rather think the up. real story, and the, the evidence is still on Alcatraz, and as I call in their their bookshop which uh, we don't call it a bookshop, I'll leave what we call it out, but it's, in, it's, it's there and it, where they got through the bars. There's uh, some window bars on the inside that make a curve near the top. And while I don't know exactly it happened this way, it, it, they managed, uh, John Paul Scott and his partner, managed to get through those bars using some sort of impregnated twine, <laughs> that they could rub back and forth and get through the bars. Now, the way I have put it together is this has been going on for some time. It wasn't just John Paul Scott that had worked on this, it was inmates before him as well. These things take a long time in planning and sometime you may not complete it, but at least you continue to work on it. So one way or the other, they were the ones that got through this particular set of bars. and. Having planned it out well, they took along some flotation gear that they had acquired, and all inmates acquire things. They took along some flotation gear, and and amazing to me is they took along a long lead of electrical cord. What was the flotation devices? Well, it was just uh, raincoat gear and any kind of rubberized fabric that you could uh, seal. Uh, there's a picture of it somewhere I have, and you could look exactly, very rudimentary devices to keep you on the surface. Uh, I think they had some wooden paddles that they had made like fins and things like oh, wow. this. But they also had acquired a, maybe a hundred foot or more of electrical cord, they planned this out, and, <laughs> and, and some other items. So when they were able to escape, it was along about 5.30 in the evening in December. And they went out on the Angel Island side of Alcatraz, which doesn't face San Francisco, it faces Angel Island. They went out at 5.30 in the evening and they climbed a a drain spout that comes from the roof to the ground. Hmm. They both climbed the drain spout up to the ceiling, up to the roof of the prison and they went diagonally across the roof of the prison. Now the reason they did this, to our best knowledge, is they wanted to avoid the guard towers. If they went out on the San Francisco side, there's a road tower there that they may well have been seen. So they went this way to avoid the guard towers and went diagonally across the, the roof of the prison. That's when the electrical cord came in. So this was really well planned out. They tied the electrical cord off, snaked it down the San Francisco side out of view of the, the uh, road tower, and they both climbed the electrical cord down to the base of the prison. Wow. Then they went, uh, it's hard to explain, but they went diagonally down the hill and over, I'll say over the dale, until they got to the edge of the, the island now I know this area real well cuz I used to fish at the bottom of where they came out. It's a sewer outfall. It's still there, sewer outfall. Great fishing at the sewer outfall. They they worked their way down the cliffside now. The cliff is very very steep there. And his John Paul Scott's partner fell and he broke his ankle as he hit oh. the bottom. But John Paul was able to make it all the way to the bottom without falling. I'm not sure how, but he did. And at that point, at the sewer outfall, they got into the water. Well, as John Paul explains it in his uh, interview, they, they could see the lights of the city. Uh, you know, daylight saving time at end, it was already dark, they could see the lights of the city and it was kind of foggy and, and misty and, and maybe it was even raining a little bit. But he could see the lights of the city. They both got into the water. His partner was unable to swim with a broken ankle, and he drifted westerly and ended up on what's called Little Alcatraz. Hmm. There's a little tiny rock that appears when the tide is out uh, that we call Little Alcatraz, and there's a buoy to mark it when the tide is in so that boats don't get too close to this. Well, he ended up there and was picked up there. But John Paul Scott swam toward the lights in the city. Now, he was a young man in his 30s. Must have been in good shape, and he must have picked the right tides because he ended up making it to San Francisco. Wow. And he ended up at what's called Fort Point, which is the Presidio at the time. It was a military base. And he ended up in some rocks at Fort Point. He was about 50 yards or less from going out the gate and possibly ending up on Baker Beach, where he could have Got up, but he didn't. He ended up on these rocks. His temperature at the time, as measured in the hospital later, was ninety-four degrees. Hypothermia had set in. He had was exhausted. He couldn't pull himself out. All he could do was yell. Yeah. So some teenagers who was living on the island at the at living in the presidio at the time heard him. Got the military police. They come. They extracted him. <laughs> extracted. They. Him. they took him to Letterman Hospital which was on the Presidio base at the time and they put him in the hospital they took photographs you've looked at the photographs to show the damage to his body he escaped at 5:30 in the evening he was back in his cell at 11:30 at night so it's one hell of a story wow well i mean how did he get
0: out of the prison i mean that's the you know that, that's just you know
1: just... that's he i think he refers to that but between going in and out of assignments, like the, the duty in the, the, for, the, for the dining hall, or duty assignments, there was intervals of time there that were on their own. The reason they knew there was an escape is when they do a head count. You know, they did head counts periodically. And how often they did it in 1963, I don't know, but it changed over the years. But they caught the fact that he was missing because they timed it such that they had a small window of time to disappear. Well, they could have been looking for him within the prison while they were going over the top right. and down. Once they got into the water and they put boats into the water, I mean, he was, he was already you know, out of reach because they did pick up his partner on Little Alcatraz. Right. So in terms of the timing, how it worked out, I don't know, but it did work out for him.
0: Wow. Well, until he got to the.
1: <laughs> well, he he escaped, and actually, it was probably the nail that closed Alcatraz. Uh, between the escape in 1962, a few months before, where three disappeared, and then John Paul Scott made it to the to the San Francisco. These were the things that helped close Alcatraz. They'd been talking about closing Alcatraz since the late 1940s. I mean. Because of cost, but that's when it did close. It. It was shortly thereafter that the federal government closed it.
0: And you think that was the nail in the coffin? I
1: do believe it was the final thing they needed. They had enough information. There was a variety of reasons why they wanted to close out Trans. But I do believe that that was the final thing, the final straw.
0: Right um because you're talking about the paper mache head the famous escape in 62. yes too yes uh, which is
1: well written about which is uh, probably the most authenticated movie version because there was a fella that was supposed to go with that escape that didn't wasn't able to get out of the hole he created so i mean
0: and he rolled on everybody and told he, the whole story he told the whole story <laughs> so
1: you know the movie was probably as authenticated as you can get <laughs> as a movie goes even though it had some flaws <laughs> right? But, uh, that's what everybody thinks about, but they don't think about the two that escaped in 1937 and disappeared. They never, never seen again. What,
0: I don't know much about that. What happened in that one?
1: Well, I'd have to look at the names. I think it was Cole, or Coy and Roy, or I can't remember their names, but they also disappeared in 1937, the fall of, and they were not seen again. There was quite a hue and cry in San Francisco, as I understand by paper accounts, for about six months and then they were just forgot about. Uh, it didn't happen in '62 because they made a Hollywood movie out of it, and so everybody thinks about them.
0: Well, so in '37 they got uh, so they got out of the they prison. They got out of the prison
1: and escaped. There were 14 escape attempts in 29 years. Hmm. I can't remember how many of the inmates died during that time. Uh, there was a number of them that were a number of them were shot uh, uh, and died, and a number of them were picked up and put back into the prison. 14 escape attempts in 29 years.
0: It's like one every two years Yeah, on average.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I've been asked by a number of people when I lived there, w- did I ever part of an escape attempt? And I couldn't remember one from my conscious years from eight on. And as I studied the literature, that was the time that warden that the warden was Warden Swope. There were no escape attempts during his time as warden, none. <laughs> there were zero. but. Of course, when we first moved there in 1940, my sister, who was older, as that indicated, she remembered a a couple of escape attempts and the siren going off and that. She
0: there for the 46, for the Battle of Alcatraz in 46.
1: Oh, see, my father was there, but we were not living back on the island at the time.
0: Oh, because you were looking, is that when you were looking for accommodations on the island? Yes. I'd like to tell you that story. Okay, I'd like to hear it. Let
1: me, let me tell you that story because we're only beginning to scratch the surface, but that's a story that I haven't told very often. My father was there in 1946 when uh, the inmates got, got a hold of weapons. And if anybody wants to study that story, they'll, they'll see that Kretzer managed to get up into the uh, West Gun Gallery, managed to subdue a guard and managed to obtain his weapons. Well, my father was in the basement, a shower room clothing area at the time that happened. And he he sent inmate, he had 18 inmates with him at the time, he sent an inmate upstairs and the inmate came down immediately, excited. But he wouldn't tell my father what was going on. (laughs) So my father went up the stairs and looked down the cell block and he saw an inmate with a gun and the inmate saw him. So my father pulled the gate shut that was there, pulled it shut and went downstairs. And the inmate, of course, with the gun tried to get through this gate but could not. For one reason or another could not get through the gate. My father called the alarm in to Cliff Fish who was in the armory and told him there's trouble in the cell block. Well. Cliff, being an armory officer, your normal trouble doesn't include weapons. I was going to say. Yeah. So he made a comment to other officers, and uh, they went in, and uh, they were captured. They were taken hostage until somebody finally realized that there was weapons involved. Now Cliff had his own story regarding this because he's the one that set the alarm off. Uh, that was heard around the world. And that's a humorous story, we'll leave for another day. But my father spent the next three days and two nights with those inmates while the war went on. Because as you remember, they called the Marines in, Uh, they were using uh, anti-tank grenades to the roof, they were using tear gas, there was over 3,000 rounds of ammunition expended by the officers from the armory. And my father was there in the basement with 18 inmates for three days and two nights. And so my part of this story, and once again, remember that I was only a little over, I was six years old. We were in San Francisco and we got the word and my mother took me down to the Muni pier dock where there was other families and it was in the evening. This is one of my first memories. The island was on, looked like it was on fire. It was well lit up, there was explosions there was things wow. going on, and the, the dock was full of people, and then along come the Warden Johnson, and on the front of it was a, a body under a, a sheet. Well, this are very impressive things to a six-year-old, so I can still see him today. The body turned out to be an officer that was killed uh, and, and taken, taken out of the prison. But there were other officers that came off the boat and they were all injured. And one of them was holding his nose and you know, blood was coming out of his nose. And my mother asked him, how's Ed doing? My father, how's Ed doing? And, and the officer said, he's doing fine. He's okay, he's doing fine. He got in the ambulance and took off. <laughs> wow. Now, I'll tell you this story because many years later, many years later, 40 plus years later, I ran into this officer at one of the reunions. And, I, and so I told him my memory. I says, "Hey, Bob. Uh, I says, you remember this?" He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." He says, "Remember what you told my mother that was, my father?" Oh yeah. He says, "I told all the women the same thing. I didn't know what the hell was going on <laughs> with your father." Yeah, I was gonna say, "How would he know?" He didn't he in the know, basement, but he I was didn't... telling everybody the same thing. <laughs> oh, he's doing fine. But he's still alive. He, this officer is still alive. But that's my, that's my second earliest memory. My first early memory seems impossible, but it can only have happened. I must have been at three at the time, doubt if I was younger, because we were still on the island. I remember air raids in San Francisco. I remember the lights of the city going out in sections. You've never seen San Francisco go out in sections, but when it was out, it would go off, 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 and you couldn't see San Francisco. I swear you could have lit a match on the wharf if you could have seen it wow. from San Francisco. That's my earliest conscious memory is, out, is, is the air raids during, during World War II. Uh, my sister remembers air raid drills on the island. We had an air raid shelter and all that, but I don't remember that. Wow. So that, that's an answer, that's my story. That is an inc- one story. That's an incredible
0: place to, to end it. We, we're out of time, but we could probably talk all afternoon about. Well, this. Well,
1: you've time. you've just started. There's many other things, but that's the start.
0: Well, let's. So, for people who want to listen and hear more about you, what what are your websites? How can people see these pictures we're talking about? Well, and- it's
1: AlcatrazAlumni uh, org. Okay, and uh, that's where you can see the pictures. Other than that. Uh,
0: do you guys have are you guys on social media or are you no. guys on, not? No, uh,
1: I'm not a social media person, not Facebook, Twitter, but if you if you email that site, the fellow that maintains that site sometimes sends me uh, <laughs> questions. <laughs>
0: Alcatraz alumni.